US government has been run by the same people for hundreds of years. The question is, why? Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Season 2 of Back from the Future podcast. I'm Sajan Kocher and today we'll be discussing America's broken political model. So birds have two wings, correct? It takes two wings to fly. Planes, birds, pretty much anything that flies has two wings, apart from helicopters. But we're going to ignore that because that breaks my example and my analogy. So why does American politics only have a right wing? American politics is right is pretty right wing. Like anyone who denies it is kind of naive. The Democrats and Republicans may seem vastly different, but actually they're pretty close. The Dems are neoliberals, and the Republicans are conservative fascists. The closest you get to a left wing is Bernie Sanders, who's a centrist. Andrew Yang is a strict capitalist, and Obama was a centrist too. In the words of Noam Chomsky, America has a one-party system with two factions. The question is, why? To understand this, we need to look back at the formation of American politics. First, however, we need to dissect what exactly the left wing is. The left wing is divided into three sectors, in my opinion. Anarcho-communism, communism, and socialism. You also get the weird ones like Nazbol, a cross between Nazism and communism. Anarchism is the belief in the dissolution of, go- of the government and a lack of faith in authority. Anarchism, however, is a very broad term. Anarcho-communism is the belief in an anarchist society with communist ideals, whereas anarcho-capitalism believes that the only government should be free markets. Communism is the belief in a taxless society with free housing, food, healthcare and more. In return, the population worked to further the government and the society's well-being. There are also sub-sectors of communism such as Juche and uh, Maoism, Stalinism, Leninism, Marxist-Leninism and Marxism. Finally, socialism is the belief in, the high th- in high taxes but lots of free stuff like healthcare and f- school, but also a belief in free markets. So that's the left explained. Now we should examine America's history, and the history of the American political system which explains why the US has virtually no left wing. Throughout American history there have been various third parties vying for power, often representing a more leftist view than the big two but sometimes further right than most. Most of the time these parties have been absorbed by the big two, the Democrats and the Republicans, but sometimes they have survived, leaving a leftist minority in the US government and in the US politics. America became a country in 1776, but truly became internationally recognized in about 1782. In 1796, America developed a political party system living up to their reputation as the chief democracy of the world. They had the Republicans and the Federalists. The, fer- the Federalist voting base deteriorated over the following years, and eventually the Federalist Party dissolved. And in 1828, the Republicans splintered into the Democrats and Republicans, as ex Federalist voters wanted a more left wing party to vote for. In the 1830s, the Whig Party emerged, but it was soon after dissolved in 1856. In 1861, the American Civil War broke out with the quasi-fascist South fighting the neoliberal North. The North won, creating America, the neoliberal society we know today. The Americans were at the time more left-wing than most countries actually, because most countries at the time were still monarchies. In 1865 the KKK was formed, and many politicians, particularly Southerners, joined. Even now Donald Trump's dad was a Klansman. 
However, when World War I broke out and the USSR was created, things went sideways for the American left. America's parties were scared of this new left wing which had just been created with the treaties of Versailles and Brest-Litovsk. However, the main problem hadn't come yet. World War II broke out in 1939 and ended with the American victory in Japan in 1945-46. That sparked the beginning of the Cold War. This was the beginning of the end for American socialism and communism. The Americans competed with the USSR in everything, including space, wars, and even trade. American schools were inst- American schools instituted nuclear war drills at the height of the tensions. Because of this, a whole generation of Americans were educated that capitalism is good and communism is evil. For someone to criticize this was essentially to have a death wish, as the US government would and could imprison you for sympathizing with their greatest enemy. Since then, everything which goes against American libertarian ideals is equated to communism, such as the quarantine equals communism movement. The US fought countless wars in all continents over capitalism versus communism, most of which they won simply because they spent more on their military. America then experienced the McCarthyist witch hunts in the Reagan administration, in which the American left-wing third parties were cracked down on by the government. This coincided with the rise of Reagan and his free market lexicon. He, ta- he lowered taxes and encouraged the growth of trade. Essentially, because of this, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. The USSR fell in 1991 and so did the Eastern Bloc, and the Clintons and Bushes fought more and more wars in the Middle East to defend America. This was likely an excuse to capture Arabian oil fields. This was the end of the American left. So now you're all caught up. Still though, the question is, why don't why didn't the two parties evolve when they saw the countries of Europe becoming more and more socialist? Ultimately, there is no need for a political left anywhere because for them it's worked just fine. And why don't the third parties ever get any votes? Well, this is a complex issue and it's sort of a paradox. The lack of evolution and the lack of creation of the left wing in America stems from the lack of leftists in government, which stems from the inaccessibility of government to leftists, which in turn is because of the nepotism of the right wing in government bringing it into a great big fascist circle. Ultimately, however, the main reason is the perceived lack of need for a left in America. The American elites believe that the third parties are never getting any votes is a separate paradox. The population believes that voting for a third party is a waste of a vote because they never win. Because of this, they never win, making it a paradox. In addition to this, the US population has been educated that the left wing is all about control and the right is all about freedom. This basically robbed the leftist third parties of any votes whatsoever. However, recent the ideas of right equals freedom have come under fire with the Trumpian deportation camps along the American-Mexican border, in which deportees have been imprisoned in cages. Also, the Charlottesville massacre and the Trump-Russia scandal have brought criticism upon the right. So the question is, what actually is the American left wing, and why is it so unknown? And what problems have years of rightism in America caused? So most of you will have heard of the political compass, right? For those of you who don't know, it's a two-dimensional political measurement system which measures political beliefs on an economic and freedom axes. The top is more authoritarian and the bottom is more anarchist. The left is more economically left, as in it's more controlling but egalitarian, and the right is more economically right, as in it's less controlling and more libertarian. So American politics is mostly concentrated in the top right quadrant, authoritarian right. Bernie Sanders is right in the centre, and Andrew Yang is in the bottom right quadrant, just about. However, America also has a left, 
It's like the unwanted neglected child of America's war on communism and the oppression that came with it. Examples of this include the American Communist Party and the American Socialist Party, and more extreme examples include the Philadelphia Black Bloc and the American Antifa. Years of neglect have caused tensions between the government and the American alt-right to clash with the, left of, with the leftist views of the Antifa. Examples of this include the Charlottesville massacre and the Black Bloc protests in Philadelphia in 2017. So considering all of this, in 2020, does America need to change? After, two, after nearly 244 years of neoliberalism, quasi-fascism, and straight fascism at some points, should and will Amer the American political model change? I believe it should, but won't. A study in which a teacher asked a class who had just studied libertarianism, capitalism, fascism, communism, and socialism, which one they liked best, most chose socialism. I would have to agree. However, with regards to whether it will or not, I honestly think it won't. There is honestly no way of knowing what will happen, because none of us can foretell the future, obviously. However, a good way to look at it is to look at um, the ways that other countries are moving. So recently we've seen Scandinavia move to more socialism, which has worked out quite well for them actually, but we know that Western countries don't really like socialism at all whatsoever. On the other hand, you've seen countries like India, the UK, and Poland moving more gradually to the right, and Hungary has just declared that it is officially not a democracy anymore. And Belarus is a straight dictatorship, and so is Russia. So I would have to say that at the moment politics is moving largely to the right. And I would have to say, America is either going to stay where it is now, or is going to follow them. And actually, we might be seeing that now with Trump. So now we're talking to my first guest, the executive director of the Libertarian Party of America, Daniel Fishman. So now we are speaking to today's guest, Daniel Fishman of the Libertarian Party of the U USA. Uh, can you just say hi, please? States, the Libertarian Party. So, for those of my listeners who don't know, what exactly would you say libertarianism is? Uh, libertarianism is, we only have two philosophies. Number one, you own yourself. Uh, we believe that to deny that is to imply that somebody else can own you, and we believe that that is patently uh, terrible. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. if we agree that everyone is allowed to own themselves, and that follows that as a result, they are entitled to decide what goes into their body, what comes out of their body, uh, what happens with the products of their labor. Nobody has a uh, entitlement or a preeminent claim to the product of your labor because you own yourself. Hmm. And then our second belief is that it is not okay to use violence or force or aggression against another person except in self-defense. So... Famously, people know that the Libertarian Party was in favor of legalizing cannabis or marijuana uh, in the United States for yep. 40 years. The reason why is not because we want people to use cannabis. If you do, that's totally fine. But the reason why we supported its legalization was because, number one, you own yourself. That means you get to decide what goes into your body. No government gets to arrest you because you put something into your body that they think is not okay because you own yourself. And number two, we don't believe in using force against people except in self-defense. 
So even if we were to disapprove of what you put in your body, we certainly couldn't imprison you for it. We couldn't use force against you for it. The only thing that force is justified for is self-defense. Now, if you were using drugs and then hurting somebody, that's causing harm to somebody else. We're allowed to use force because it's self-defense. But our core principles are only those two things. Number one, you own yourself. Number two, only use force in self-defense. Okay. So would you so you're a third party in the US bipartisan party system. Would you say that the bipartisan system of the US is sort of rigged against third parties because you know, you don't in my experience, I haven't gotten a lot of education about third parties and I just don't generally see a lot of education about the third parties and most people just go for they only think they have two options. What would you say it's, about that? It's definitely true, although it's important to point out that if you were to look at uh, the Mount Rushmore, which is uh, a mountain in North Dakota that's carved with the president's faces on it, yeah, uh, every face on there is a president who did not belong to a major party. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. George Washington, famously, there were no parties at that point in time, truly. However, Abraham Lincoln... Uh, Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. Republicans were not a major party at the time when he was elected. The two major parties were the Whigs and the Democratic Republicans. Um, so, and the Whigs had actually devolved into a party called uh, two parties, uh, the Republicans, and then another party that prided themselves on being called the Know Nothing Party. And they were a party based on uh, anti-immigrant fervor and nationalism, uh, very similar to what we see happening to the Republican Party today. Teddy Roosevelt ran as a third-party candidate, and uh, Thomas Jefferson, of course, was the first Democratic-Republican to run. So third parties used to have a great deal of influence in the United States. However, very recently uh, in, our, in our young history, uh, third parties have gone away because Americans are good at process. We are good at business, and elections have become business in the United States. So the two major parties or as I like to say, the two old parties have become excellent at winning elections. In fact, they are corporations right now, and they are corporations that sell elections. So the two major parties recognize, just like any corporation does, competition is bad for business. So they've done everything they can to ensure that there is no competition, including mm -hmm. making it very difficult for a third-party candidate to get on the ballot. Even though we are the third largest party in the United States, there are still uh, 14 states in the United States that we do not have our presidential candidate on the ballot yet. That's because we have to go out and gather signatures to get that president on the ballot. And as you can imagine, in this time of COVID, it's very difficult to, uh, well, in fact, in most places it's illegal, to be out on the street corner handing somebody a uh, clipboard and a pen and mm, asking yeah. them to sign. So uh, we are suing right now in a lot of states. We just won a big lawsuit in Illinois uh, to say that this year you either have to allow digital petitioning or, uh, as Illinois did, completely waive the petitioning requirements. Yeah. So would you say that it's undemocratic that the big two parties don't have to go and do that and get their names on the ballot? Uh, it's, it is, I mean, that's... I don't like the word democratic there because dem democracy is different from authoritarian. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the big lies that we've been told by the two main parties and uh, actually 
true across the country is that the political uh, number line runs from right to left. And that that's what they want you to believe, that you either have to be right. And so, for example, in the United States to the right is the Republican Party, and beyond that are corporations controlling everything. And the, to the left is the Democratic Party, and beyond that is the state controlling everything. But in reality, the politics is three-dimensional. There's a third dimension, a third direction, and that direction is up. And that's the direction of individual liberty. And so the real test of politics is up and down, authoritarian versus libertarian. And so you look at some issues, right? Cannabis is not a right issue or a left issue. It's a liberty issue. It's an up issue. Marriage equality. So uh, libertarians have supported marriage equality, same-sex marriage, since 1972. Uh, whereas Democrats, you know, as recently as 2008, during the campaign, both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton said that marriage is between a man and a woman. Okay, we don't believe that marriage is a right issue or a left issue. It's a liberty issue. And it's very important for us that we get rid of the idea that democracy uh, lends any credence to something. Uh, there's a famous statement, uh, uh, it's attributed to Churchill, but it's probably not him. Democracy has to be more than two wolves and a chicken voting on what's for dinner. Your yeah. rights are fundamental to you, and even a democracy should not be able to take them away. Uh, there's another famous saying, uh, it shows a, a bar, uh, and there's a lot more men than women, and it says, should we use democracy to determine what happens next? Of course not. Mm -hmm. right? There are times that your fundamental rights have to outweigh democracy. So uh, I wouldn't say that it's anti-democratic. I would say that it's very authoritarian that uh, third-party candidates have to fight so hard to be in an election that is supposed to be available to everybody. Yeah. So, one reason that a lot of people have been att attributing to the lack of representation of third parties in the US is the Democrats and the Republicans are actually, if you compare them with perspective, they're actually quite similar and they're more to the right. That is the mechanism that they use now. I, I am very aware of the fact. So I went to school in the UK, took my A-levels, um, and uh, absolutely, the uh, the Democrats, who are our quote-unquote left party, are certainly much more conservative, much more conservative than the Tories uh, in the UK, or, you know, any other, almost any other party that you can find, obviously. You know, in France and Germany, you can find extreme right-wing parties. Uh, but... Uh, well, and, and UKIP, I guess. But uh, fundamentally, American politics is much further to the right. And the reason why is because we're one of the very few countries that has uh, a, uh, an affirmative constitution. Our constitution does not say what the government can do. It says what the government cannot do. So, for example, the First Amendment says, government shall make no laws. The Second Amendment says, shall not infringe, uh, or the Third Amendment, but the Fourth Amendment says the people shall be free from. So the Constitution affirms that rights do not come to you from government. Your government does not grant you rights. Your rights are inherent to you as a person. Mm, government yeah. does not grant them. And as a result, the Constitution is an instruction to government, do not interfere with these rights that people have. So government in order to accumulate power. And fundamentally, power is a closed system. There's only so much power in the world. 
And if government gets more power, the people have less. And if corporations get power, then government has less and the people have less. All power originally derives from the people. Government gets some uh, through, as it says in the Declaration of the Independence, through the consent of the governed. People will occasionally give government power so that it can do some things. However, that should not take away your rights, but it mm -hmm. does to some extent diminish people's individual power. There's no question about that. And what where it gets really bad is when government gives some of that power to corporations through legislation. That's where it becomes really bad, when a corporation has any power at all. And the two main parties, what they've done is they have started to use fear of the other side as a way to justify you give them more power. And as an example, I ran for uh, state auditor in the state of Massachusetts in 2018. Um, I was endorsed by every major paper in the state of Massachusetts, but I was running as a libertarian. A week before the election, I was speaking to a group of voters in Wellesley, Massachusetts, very democratic town, uh, very democratic crowd, but I wasn't gonna win unless I got democratic voters. And I said to them, auditor who's supposed to make sure that the government is wasting money is a critical position that belongs to the people. Why would you elect a Republican or a Democrat to audit Republicans and Democrats? It's the one position you want somebody who is outside of the party system. And I could see the crowd nodding along and everybody liked it. But at the end, a woman stood up and she said, you know, Dan, I loved everything that you had to say. I think you would be an amazing auditor. But the party has told me that if I don't vote Democratic all the way, that shows weakness in the Democratic Party. And that allows Donald Trump to build the wall. And I cannot have that. <laughs> and people in the audience started clapping. And that's where we are. The Republicans and the Democrats have convinced the other side that if you vote for the other side, if you have convinced their, uh, their party members, if you vote for the other side, or even worse, if you don't vote for them, the worst possible thing is going to happen. And the reason why, you know, I go back to the idea that Americans have always been really good at business and we're really good at marketing and selling things. And the old parties realized about 20, 25 years ago or so that rather than having to run a new positive marketing campaign for each candidate that come along, came along, they could run the same negative campaign and refine it over and over and over again. And that's why America has become so polarized is because the Republicans have been convincing people that the Democrats are evil. If you elect the Democrats, we're going to have pure socialism, government controlling work, uh, no businesses allowed to uh, innovate. Uh, and the Democrats have convinced people that if Republicans are in charge, you're going to have uh, you know, no more Social Security, old people and poor people starving, the rich uh, essentially creating indentured servitude, all these things none of which are actually true because we have somewhat of a balanced system, but they've been using fear to scare people to vote for them. They've been using fear to convince people that the other parties are terrible. And the solution to that is not uh, a breakup of anything other than the electorate and the party system and convincing people that you have rights and government shouldn't be able to take them away. And it doesn't matter which government it is. And I think this president has actually done a great deal to convince a lot of Americans that the president shouldn't have quite as much power as he has right now. Yeah. 
Well, you also see people scared to waste their vote. They don't want to just... Like, they, they think that if you vote for a third party, they're almost never going to win, so they just think they're wasting their vote. And they don't want to do that, because y- you see the rhetoric of, you should vote. And in reality, that's part of the same marketing system, that people are very... Have, they're scared. If you vote for a libertarian... Right now, for example, right now, uh, a congressman has announced for uh, to run for president as the United States, and uh, the first libertarian sitting congressman uh, in history. And his name is Justin Amash. Um, but as soon as he announced, the Democrats said, "Oh my God! Anybody who votes for Justin Amash is voting for Donald Trump to become president," because they don't want to take the chance that they're going to lose votes to him. They don't want to take the chance that uh, our fundamental system is. Uh, they don't. They're worried that if it breaks the fear lock, if it breaks Democrats being afraid afraid of voting for anything other than Democrat, that that's bad for them as a party. And they're right. That actually is bad for them as a party, but it's good for the country. Yeah. One of the things that fixed that too is uh, there's a movement right now in the United States to establish what's called ranked choice voting. Uh, you know, it's used around the world. It's used in Australia, used in a lot of other places. But in ranked choice voting, your vote can never be wasted. So if I, I vote for all my candidates, let's say in the last presidential election, uh, I would have voted for Gary Johnson first and Jill Stein second, Donald Trump third, Hillary Clinton fourth. Uh, and then they total up all the votes. And if Gary Johnson didn't win uh, on the first ballot, then they go through and they figure out who had the least number of first place votes. And that candidate is eliminated from every ballot. So let's just say the first round, Jill Stein had the least amount of votes. So now my ballot would read first place, Gary Johnson, second place, Donald Trump, third place, Hillary Clinton. Uh, And then they would go through and they say, okay, does anybody have more than 50%? Nobody had more than 50%. Who has the least number of votes? Gary Johnson. Okay, we eliminate Gary Johnson. So now my ballot would read Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. And they would go through and they would total up everybody and... Obviously, there's only two candidates left, and so one somebody would have over 50%, and then that person would win. However, my vote for Gary Johnson didn't waste my ballot. My ballot still counted for a candidate that I preferred over my last place choice, who was Hillary Clinton. Mm. All right. I think that's quite a clever system to counteract the fear of wasting a vote. It is. It actually is being used right now in the state of Maine. And in 2018, it affected uh, a congressional election. So because of ranked choice voting, a Republican who got 45 percent of votes for him. However, there were three other candidates who had a total of 55 percent. And so what happened was very few of those candidates of those votes voted for the Republican in later rounds. And so in the end, the Democrat ended up winning. 51 to 49. So if we'd done a normal system, the Republican who had 45% in the first round would have won. However, that would have meant the 51% of people who did not want that candidate would have not gotten a choice, would have gotten the candidate they wanted least. Ranked choice voting does a very good job of saying, elect the candidate who is acceptable to the most number of people. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for speaking with me on my podcast. Great, can you send me a link when it goes up?
So now we're talking to my second guest, Sarah Olney, uh, MP for Richmond Park and uh, Liberal Democrat. Okay. Uh, so now we're speaking to my guest for my second guest this episode, um, Sarah Olney, uh, MP for Richmond, I think. Is that right? Richmond Park. Uh, so. How would you describe what the Liberal Democrats is? Like, what is the philosophy of the Liberal Democrats? I think our philosophy is that we are very focused on the rights and equality of individuals and empowering individuals to lead their own lives. So we don't necessarily think of people as being part of groups, which I would argue is what Labour and the Conservatives do. But our priorities are very much around equality, both in law and in practice. They're about education, making sure that everybody has to to, uh, really achieve their very best. Uh, And we're very tuned into climate change as well, because um, you just think that the climate change, the climate emergency we're facing is obviously a massive threat to everybody. And I would say we're also a very pro-business party as well, and we're about individuals being able to develop links with each other for mutual benefit. So um, I would say we're we're pro-business and trade. Yeah. So the UK is it's not exactly a bipartisan system like the US, but there are two main parties, Labour and the Conservatives. So what would you say, like, what are the differences of being in a sort of quote unquote third party? Yeah, I think the role of the third party in in British politics has really changed in the last decade. So we were the third party for, we were quite a significant force in the 1990s and in the uh, in the 2000s, uh, and, well, the first 15 years, I would say, of, of the 21st century. Um, and we were really a balance. And to my mind, we, we kind of almost acted as a bit of a, a discipline in that because we were second in so many seats, either to Labour or to the Conservatives, and both of them always had to really worry about losing support to us because we were often a more moderate version of the party that was in first place. Um, They couldn't go too far to the right or to the left. But as I'm sure you're aware, in 2015, we lost a lot of comments and therefore we lost a lot of influence. And any of the party leaders, it's really clear that both the Tories and the Labour Party have become much more extreme. And I think we acted as a bit of a break or as a bit of a... Uh, you know, um, a moderating influence on both the parties because they were worried about losing seats to us. Now, and I think the 2019 election was a really good example of that, uh, the Tory message is always to demonise Labour and to really exaggerate their more extreme qualities and say you don't want that to scare people into voting um, the Tories. And, and Labour are very similar in that they, they paint the Tories in the worst possible light and they whip up a lot of anger and they make people really angry against the Tories. And I think we've seen a lot more of this um, confrontation and anger and mistrust. And I think it's partly because we don't really have that stabilising force of a third party in politics anymore. The third party in the Commons now is actually the Scottish Nationalists. Um, mm. and they became a lot more powerful since the independence referendum in 2014. And um, they don't operate in that stabilizing influence in quite the same way because they don't stand in all seats. And because as a nationalist force, you know, they're very much part of this trying to sort of uh, stir up division and, um, and, and, and conflict because that's what they're all about. They want to, to drag Scotland away from the UK. So I think 
that's the role that the Liberal, Dem Liberal Democrats historically played. I think there's a role for us still, but because of this much diminished in, in the Commons, it's not uh, it's not as powerful as it once was. Mm. So, and so that thing about um, uh, the two main parties, they just scare people into thinking that the other party is evil and the axis of evil. Um, you see that a lot nowadays. But I think another factor that I've seen a lot, which plays into why people don't vote for third parties, is um, people are scared of wasting their vote. So what would you say about that? Yes, and I think that's been a significant factor for us. It was certainly a significant factor in 2019. We thought we would do a lot better than we would, but people were scared. And I think this is a part of the negativity of politics, people not wanting to vote for the party that they actually support, but the party but, um, to ensure that the party they didn't want to see in power didn't get there. Now, um, the constituency that borders mine to the south, Isha and Walton, is the constituency of Dominic Raab, who's the foreign secretary and also was standing in for Boris Johnson for a little while. Um, now, we saw a massive swing to us there, but at the end of the day, we couldn't win that constituency because there were too many people who worried that by not voting for a Conservative MP, they were making it more likely that Jeremy Corbyn would become Prime Minister. And they had all been, they were all terrified at the prospect of Corbyn becoming Prime Minister. So that is what we see. People, people vote against, the, in, in a very divided and a very aggressive and in a very um, confrontational political atmosphere people vote against the outcome that they don't want to see and that is a real problem for us hmm. so with some other third parties that i contacted uh quite a few of them i actually noticed um instead of going for presidency or actual office lots of the time third parties actually just intend to get enough seats so that they can sort of counteract the leftist or right-wing views of the other main parties in parliament mm. so, so in other, in other, oh, sorry, I'm interrupting. would you would you say the intention that the liberal democrats has is to actually go for office or would you say that at the moment is just to stabilize because it's quite an interesting aspect of third party politics um i think for us um certainly in um we were hoping to be that stabilising influence. I mean, at the end of the day, when we have a general election, all the seats are up for grabs. Anybody could win them. Um, and the leader of the party with the most seats is the Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, and, you know, theoretically, you could say that any party leader, or certainly um, Labour, Conservative or Liberal Democrat, or even the Greens, uh, could become Prime Minister because they could theoretically win enough seats. But realistically, we know that we are actually looking either the leader of the Labour Party or the leader of the Conservative Party. So I think what we were looking for in 2019 was the possibility that um, we could go into potentially form some kind of a green coalition or some support to the Labour Party um, so that you know we could join together to get the Conservatives out. And we were very anxious to get the Conservatives out because they were championing Brexit and we didn't want that. But of course we had the problem that um, Jeremy Corbyn was incredibly unpopular and we couldn't have supported him for Prime Minister. So it was actually a very, very difficult position to be in in 2019. And I think that was one of the things that made it difficult for us to improve on our position. Um, but I would say um, the 
what's very difficult in the UK is the first-past-the-post voting system, so that you need only win by a few votes in your constituency, and then you get to represent the whole constituency, and then that seat in Parliament is then becomes, you know, your party. And in um, countries where they have a more proportional voting system, so that seats are distributed according to... Um, how many votes you got, you know, how, how your votes, your party's votes were spread as a proportion across the country. You see a lot more of this kind of coalition building because it's much more difficult for any party to get an overall majority. And in that, and in that kind of voting system, you can then aim to be that moderating influence or that even a radicalizing influence. You can go the other way um, because you've got a much better chance of winning enough seats to be useful in a coalition with a larger party. Um, but we, we've only seen that once in this country, and that was obviously between 2010 and 2015. And I would argue that we absolutely did have that impact on the Tory-led coalition. Um, and that a lot of people actually really supported what we achieved. But obviously, we lost a lot of seats in 2015, um, and we're not able to have that impact anymore. Mm. So in the US, uh, one thing I noticed is actually um, you don't see a lot of education about what the third parties actually stand for. And you also see that uh, the two big parties are always prioritised with um, they get they instantly get put on the ballot. Um, I'm not sure how that actually works in the UK, so would you mind explaining how... It, it's a similar thing. It's a similar thing here because um, the leader of the second largest party automatically becomes the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. And you may have seen, uh, obviously, Boris Johnson did a broadcast of The Nation on Sunday night, and um, Keir Starmer, as the leader of the opposition, did a broadcast last night uh, about the coronavirus um, and because they automatically get that status because they are the leader of the opposition they automatically um, in, in broadcasting and media law get that opportunity to respond they get reserved slots on the news um, and they were much more able to paint you know the other party as, uh, as extremist and you know um, something to worry about so um so I, I, I really, so I really think that we have missed having that sort of moderating, stabilising force in politics that a, a third party really represents. Okay, well, thank you for coming on my podcast and answering a few questions, and I look forward to sending you the link to the finished episode when it comes out tonight. I really look forward to it, and in sort of panel debates, so that um, in order to make sure that things are balanced out, there must always be a voice from the opposition, um, and, that, and then other parties may or may not get a slot depending on what else is going on. So it's much much harder for us to get um, get a voice out there as of right. Uh, because you know there's a limit to the number of, of voices that can be accommodated and as long as an opposition MP has been represented then the broadcasters and the newspapers will have fulfilled their duty so it is much harder we have to work a lot harder um, and sometimes we're able to get the national press to cover what we do what we tend to do a lot more is to do a lot more local campaigning uh, we'll go and knock on doors and put leaflets through doors. We will, you know, try and collect email addresses and email people so that people, um, when it comes to casting their votes, they have heard from us, they have heard of us, but not necessarily through the mainstream media. 
So that's how we try and get around it. But it is much, much harder. And of course, it's not in the interest of either Labour or the Conservatives to um, to help us. They're very keen to maintain the two parties duopoly in uh, in British politics. Um, they don't mind the SNP so much because the SNP don't really threaten their ability to win seats, uh, enough seats to form a government, but we do, and so it's absolutely in their interest to squeeze us out so they don't help us if they, uh, you know, if they can. So, just one final question. Um, so, with the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, they're moving in opposite directions politically, so you see, like, you're sort of getting slightly worrying levels of political extremism nowadays with certain politicians like UKIP or the Brexit Party and on the other hand you have uh, some people in Labour or like socialism and that kind of aspect on the other side. So would you, and you also have lots of single issue parties so they're not really counteracting this movement. So does that concern you with the Liberal Democrats being quite a small party but the only party that can sort of pull it together and keep it centred, keep politics. Yeah, as, as I said, I think, as I said to you before, I think the fact that we become um, less influential on political life in this country is actually uh, what became a catalyst for some of that, you know, more extreme positions that the other parties started taking because they weren't afraid. I'm just apologising for the battle you were just then. Um, my recording setup was kind of messed up. So now it's time for the Week in News, the section where I look at last week's news and this week's news and makes predictions for next week's news. So in this week's news we have a few minor pieces and one major piece. Boris Johnson has officially changed the rhetoric of the UK lockdown. Now it's not stay home, protect the NHS and save lives, it's now now stay alert, control the virus, save lives. Which is a big change because it softens the rhetoric of the UK government. Now uh, citizens of England, specifically England, not Wales and Scotland or Northern Ireland, are now permitted unlimited exercise and are now allowed to play sports with members of their own family. So they've also introduced a new five-tier virus control system and currently we're at stage four uh, with stage one being no threat stage five being intense pandemic Uh, I think the US or Italy are what some would consider a stage five but we never got to a stage five because the NHS was never overwhelmed Um, and using this new rhetoric we're trying to get it down to a stage three Another big bit of news for any listeners or students is um, uh, they said that um, children who have exams coming up are going to go back to school at the earliest June 1st. So that's presumably, in my opinion, I would interpret that as being going back for half days or maybe every other day and only for year 6s and 11s because they're the kids who have exams. Uh, I highly doubt any of the other kids are actually going to be going back until September next year. So you've got a lot of catching up to do, guys. Um, and that's pretty much it. Uh, we haven't seen many changes elsewhere. 
obviously there were there was other non-coronavirus news. President Orbán of uh, Hungary, Hungary has officially declared that his country is no longer a democracy, which is obviously not a good thing. And you've also seen this coincides with Belarus being the last dictatorship in Europe, and you see Russia slowly becoming more dictatorship-like, and obviously Romania becoming more fascist, the UK becoming more fascist, US becoming more fascist, you see a lot of countries slowly moving to the right. So, yeah, that's pretty much the only piece of non-coronavirus news for this week. So that's it for this week, folks. Hope you liked the episode. Um, go follow me on Instagram at Back from Future Podcast and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to this podcast on right now. And also go and like all my posts, that would really help. And share this episode to anyone you know who you think might be interested in politics, journalism, or history. Um, you may have noticed that I changed my background music. Um, please comment on my Instagram or DM me whether you like it or not. And also, um, sorry for the audio quality on the Sarah Olney interview. Um, My recording setup was kind of falling apart in the middle of that. 